Well, good morning. It's good to have you all with us here today. I'm super excited that you all survived Snowmageddon. Uh, usually that's a joke, but this one actually kind of was. So <laughs> glad you're all here. My name is Roger Rushing. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at New City, and it's my opportunity and my privilege to get to come and share with you today as we start the Advent season. And I thought it would be appropriate if I uh, read an excerpt from a very scholarly work by Dr. Seuss today. So if you would, hear these words. Congratulations! Today is your day. You're off to great places. You're off and away. You have brains in your head. You have feet in your shoes. You can steer yourself any direction you choose. You're on your own, and you know what you know, and you are the guy who will decide where you'll go. You'll look up and down streets, look them over with care, and some you will say, I don't choose to go there. With your head full of brains and your shoes full of feet, you're too smart to go down any not-so-good streets. And you may not find any you'll want to go down. In that case, of course, you'll head straight out of town. It's opener there in the wide open air. Out there, things can happen and frequently do to people as brainy and footsy as you. And when things start to happen, don't worry, don't stew. Just go right along. You'll start happening too. Oh, the places you'll go. You'll be on your way up. You'll see You'll be seeing great sights. You'll join the high flyers who soar to high heights. You won't lag behind because you'll have the speed. You'll pass the whole gang and you'll soon take the lead. Wherever you fly, you'll be the best of the best. Wherever you go, you will top all the rest. Except when you don't. Because sometimes you won't. I'm sorry to say, but sadly it's true that bang-ups and hang-ups can happen to you. You can get all hung up in a prickly perch, and your gang will fly on, and you'll be left in a lurch. You'll come down from the lurch with an unpleasant bump, and the chances are then that you'll find yourself in a slump. And when you're in a slump, you're not in for much fun. Unslumping yourself is not easily done. You will come to a place where the streets are not marked. Some windows are lighted, but mostly they're darked. A place you could sprain both your elbow and chin. Do you dare to stay out? Do you dare to go in? How much can you lose and how much can you win? And if you go in, should you turn left or right or right in three quarters or maybe not quite or go around back and sneak in from behind? Simple it's not. I'm afraid you will find for a mind maker up to make up his mind. You can get so confused that you'll start into race down long wiggled roads at a breaknecking pace and grind on for miles across weirdish wild space. Headed, I fear, for the most useless place, the waiting place, for people just waiting. Waiting for a train to go or a bus to come or a plane to go or the mail to come or the train to go or their phone to ring or the snow to snow or waiting around for a yes or a no or waiting for their hair to grow. Everyone is just waiting. Waiting for the fish to bite or waiting for the wind to fly a kite or waiting around for Friday night or waiting perhaps for their Uncle Jake, or a pot to boil, or a better break, or a string of pearls, or a pair of pants, or a wig with curls, or another chance. Everyone is just waiting. Nobody likes to wait. Waiting is no fun. Uh, and as Dr. Seuss says here, it's a useless place. We often feel that, right? And it doesn't matter if we're waiting for something good or something bad. Obviously, if we're waiting for something that we're really excited about, that we really want, that we know is going to be good, we can't wait. And it, we would like to think it's just our kids who are terrible at waiting, but it's us too. We can't wait. We want to skip to the end. We want to get to the fun. We want to get to that happy thing, right? But what's weird is even if it's something that 
we expect not to be so good. You know, maybe that meeting with HR where you're going to find out you were laid off, or that call from the doctor with the results from the test that you're pretty sure you already know, or that call from your family member who's going through hard times. Even then, waiting is hard, maybe more so then, because as we anticipate this bad thing, our anticipation can grow and our imaginations can go wild, and we just want to fill in the blanks, and we want to know. We want to get it over with. We want to get to the end. Nobody likes waiting, which is a little bit unfortunate because the season of Advent is all about waiting. This is a time when we practice waiting, when we think about waiting, and where we wait and wait and wait. And we're not just waiting for Christmas. That's part of Advent. But there's a lot more to it, too. But waiting for Christmas is appropriate. It's waiting for that time to come and celebrate together. We have presents and we give gifts, remembering the gift that we've been given in Jesus Christ. We gather together as families to talk about all the good things that God has done and to celebrate the love that we have in him and with one another. It's a great thing because in that, we also find this hope, right? And hope, it remembers the past. It's that thing that tells us that something good has happened. And when we look to Christmas, we have hope, a hope that remembers the past because in the coming of Jesus, everything changed. In the birth of this child, suddenly you and I, we have a way back to God where before there was no way. And by our own power, we could make no way. But Christmas is even more than that. It, it's the end of a waiting, a culmination of a waiting that was taking place for generations and generations and generations. The word Advent means coming. And that's what the people were waiting for. They were waiting for the coming, and the coming was the coming Messiah. See, Israel had long ago, in the depths of exile, when all had been taken away from them, when they found themselves at the pit of hopelessness, God sent prophets to begin to speak a word of hope, and that word of hope was Messiah, Savior, Christ. The Redeemer, the one who would come and save the people and bring them out of that place of hopelessness and restore them in their hope. And hope remembers the past, just as the Israelites waited. They waited for centuries. They waited for generations. And it must have been difficult. They must have been tempted time and time again to give up hope. But even in that temptation, they continued to pass the story of the Messiah, the promise down from generation to generation, reminding them of the hope that they had. And on Christmas, we celebrate the culmination of that hope. We celebrate the Messiah who came. And so hope remembers the past. But here's the thing about hope. Hope also looks to the future. It doesn't just remember the past, but it also looks to the future and anticipates the future. And that's a big part of what Advent is as well. We look not only to the, to the past, but we look to the future. Because the coming that we're expecting and that we're celebrating is not just the first coming of Jesus, but now we have the second coming as well. Because we find in the fulfillment of the promise, in that baby who was the fulfillment of the promise, he also became for us a new promise. And that new promise was a promise that one day he would come again, that hope would be restored, or that the world would be restored, and we have hope in who he is. And so this is the hope that, that Advent brings to light. It not only reminds us of the past, but hope anticipates the future. And in that hope, we have this time when all things will be made right. And we have this time when, when the disciples come to Jesus and they say, hey, when is this going to happen? Because even they didn't like to wait. They saw waiting as kind of that useless place as well. 
And so Jesus, in the, in the verses leading up to the ones that we read today and the ones that surround it, Jesus has been saying some really disturbing things. He's been telling the disciples about some terrible stuff that's going to happen. And not just the disciples, but he's been telling the crowds as well. He's been talking about how the temple, the very locus of the heart of the faith of the people, was going to be destroyed. He said not a stone would be left on top of the other. He starts telling them about all this suffering and all this stuff that's going to happen, but he promises that there's going to be a time when he returns. And so the disciples have been hearing all of this with the crowds, but at the beginning of chapter 24, they get a moment alone with Jesus, and they come to him in chapter 24, verse 3. It says, as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be. Tell us when this is going to happen. How long do we have to wait? I mean, nobody likes to wait, but if we do have to wait, we at least want to know how long we have to wait. And the disciples are saying, when will this be? And they're asking, what signs can we have? What do we know? So tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed. That's a tough one in and of itself. But see that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but this is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So the disciples say, when is this going to happen? What are the signs? And Jesus is like, let me tell you about the signs. Wars, rumors of wars, nation against nation, all of this pain and suffering, it's not even very specific. You're not going to get a calendar out of this, right? But all Jesus is telling them is, look, it's going to get real bad. Pain and suffering, and it's going to look like, like that's the end, but that's not the end. And so he says, look, it's crazy to try to figure this out. He goes on to tell them, but concerning that day, no one knows. No one knows. He says, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son. Jesus himself doesn't know, but the Father only. So he tells them, not only is the suffering going to continue, and at times get worse, and you guys are going to go through a lot of pain yourselves, and all of this bleakness, but he tells them, trying to figure out when the end is going to come, it's a futile thing. Not even Jesus knows when it's going to be. And so you see in verse 44, he's, he begins to switch their focus. He says, therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. See, Jesus changes the focus from when will the end come to how to live in anticipation, how to live in anticipation of the end as we wait. That's the bigger thing he wants his disciples to see. It's not about predicting when he's going to come. It's not about marking it on a calendar. It's about living into that anticipation now. And what do we do with that now? And Jesus gives us three images that are a little unsettling to tell us about what the end will be like with the Son of Man coming at a time that no one knows. The first is a flood, and not just a flood, but the flood, right? He says it'll be like the times of Noah. Noah was out there following God's directions, building this giant ark in the middle of a place where there was no water, right? But his neighbors weren't clamoring to help with the ark. They weren't building little arklets themselves to go along with it. They were getting married. They were eating and drinking and having businesses. They were going about their normal life because they didn't know what was coming until suddenly the waters came. The floods rose, right? So Jesus uses that very unsettling image and says it's going to be like that. But he goes on to tell about this image of a kidnapping. 
So you've got two guys in a field, one's going to be taken and one's left. Two women grinding, grinding at the mill and one is taken and one is left. And then he goes on to this image of a thief. He says, look, if the master knew when the thief was coming, you know, thieves, they don't usually make appointments, but if the master knew when the thief was coming, he wouldn't have gone to sleep. He would have made preparations. He would have stayed alert and made sure that his house wasn't broken into. And these are the unsettling and disruptive images that Jesus used to talk to us about his second advent, his second coming. But all three of these images center on alertness, about staying alert, about being ready. Because see, the thing about hope is it doesn't just remember the past and anticipate the future, but hope also empowers the present. Hope empowers the present. That's why Jesus shifts their focus from not just looking behind or looking ahead, but to how to live now as it empowers the present. So how do we stay alert? How do we make sure that we're ready? Well, in chapter 25, Jesus continues speaking to the disciples, and he gives them three parables to help us understand more. The first is the parable of the ten virgins. So these are the ones who have come to celebrate the bridegroom and this wedding. And so they've gotten together. There's 10 of them, but five of them are wise. See, they've brought their oil lamps and they've brought oil to, be, to go with their lamps so that they will be ready when the bridegroom shows up, that they can light their lamps and celebrate with him and join in all the festivities. But the other five were not so wise. They brought lamps, but they brought no fuel for the lamps. And it says that the bridegroom was delayed in his coming. Eventually, all these 10, they fall asleep. But then... They hear the voice of the one who says, look, the bridegroom is here. He's coming. And they jump to their feet and the five wise ones light their lamps. But the five others finally realize, we forgot the oil. They beg for oil from the other five. But the five say, look, we don't have enough. This is all we have. And so Jesus shows that those five get to join in. But the five who are unwise, they don't. And so he ends that parable saying, it's like that. You gotta be ready. Then he goes on to talk about this parable of the talents. There's a sum of money, and he has this master who gives a certain amount of money to these three different servants, and it's different amounts, and then he goes away for a while, and he comes back, and the first servant has been super faithful and has doubled his money, and the second servant's been super faithful and doubled his money, but the third one, he took that time of waiting, and because he was afraid, he just took the money that he was given, and he, he hid it, he buried it, he tried to keep it safe, and he just waited for the master to come back. But the other two, they waited, and as they waited, they were able to do good work for the master. They doubled the master's money. But the third was so afraid that what he had would be taken away from him that he hid it and just kind of sat there waiting for the master to come back. And when the master comes back, it turns out that that little that he was given is taken from him because he didn't use it wisely. He didn't make good use of his waiting. It was for him a useless place. But then Jesus goes on to tell this parable, the parable of the sheep and the goats. Beginning in verse 31, he says, When the Son of Man comes in, in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd se separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will, come, will say to those on his right, Come, you, are you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It says, for I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. 
Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did to the least of one of these, my brothers, you did it to me. See, because we have this hope in Jesus, we wait differently. We wait differently. We see what it means to be alert and to be ready. It means doing the work that Jesus is doing. Feeding those who need feeding, clothing those who need clothing, caring for the needs of the people, visiting the sick, the prisoner, the lonely, right? Caring for the stranger in our land. These are the things because we wait differently. We don't wait passively. We're not like that unfaithful servant who just kind of hides away this gift that he's been given. And, and just waits for the master to return. But instead, we wait actively. We don't wait as spectators guessing or even worrying about the future, but we are to wait as those to whom the promise has been given, trusting in the one who gave the promise. So we wait because we've been given this great promise. We've already seen the first promise fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus, but now we have the second promise. As our candlelighters read to us that vision and revelation when all things will be made right. And so we wait, trusting in the one who has given the promise. And as we wait for the fullness of the kingdom to come that is not yet, we wait as those who are already part of the kingdom now. Because in the fulfillment of that first promise, in the birth of Jesus, begins the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And yet we know that the kingdom has not come yet in its fullness if you don't believe me, just look around. We know that this is not the way it's supposed to be. So the kingdom is already, and yet we have this tension with the fact that it's not yet. And so we are to live into the already of the kingdom as we wait and hope and trust in the promise that one day it will become the yet, and it will come in its fullness. But when we look around the world around us, it's easy at times to be tempted to lose hope. You don't have to read very far into the news or even your news feed on Facebook or just looking around in your own life to see there's a lot of hopelessness and there's a lot of reasons that we might have to lose hope. Our world and our lives are filled with suffering. So we can, we can see how we just want to skip to the end, right? Skip all that suffering, skip all the pain, and just jump to the end. But we have to understand this thing about hope. See, hope, it's not optimism. Hope and optimism are two different things. We sometimes put them together. But optimism doesn't take seriously suffering. Optimism has to kind of look away from suffering. Optimism has to give empty, empty responses to suffering. It has to just say things like, well, it's going to get better, right? Everything's going to be okay right? That's optimism. Hope looks suffering straight in the face and takes it seriously. Hope even enters into that suffering and suffers along with the people who are suffering. Hope takes seriously grief and mourning and pain and death. But see, the gospel, the good news that we have in Jesus, it's what makes that kind of hope possible and it also redefines suffering itself. If you look at Romans chapter 5, Paul writes, More than that, we rejoice in our suffering. 
I don't know if this is a verse you've heard before. For those of you that have heard it several times, that just kind of goes in one ear and out the other. But think about how radical that is. We rejoice in suffering, Paul says, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Another version, the NRSV says, and hope does not disappoint us. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who he has given to us. One of my favorite Old Testament scholars, he says this about hope. He says, hope is the decision to which God invites Israel. A decision against despair, against permanent consignment to chaos, oppression, barrenness, and exile. See, hope doesn't turn a blind eye to barrenness, to suffering, to exile, to brokenness, to the chaos of this world. But hope is a decision that we make in the face of that. To hope in the one who has promised that he is the answer to all of the brokenness. That he is one who will put the pieces back together, who brings peace. And that it's not just off in the future somewhere, but it is already So in the midst of our suffering, the one in whom we hope enters into our suffering and brings us hope even there. And so this is a decision that God invites us to as well. That same decision. When we're faced with brokenness and suffering, will we give up hope? Or will we make the decision to hope? And what we hope in is important. Because if we make the decision to hope in ourselves, that hope does disappoint. If we make the decision to hope in others, that hope does disappoint. In fact, there are probably many here today who have hoped time and time again, and you find that hope is like a a precious limited resource. And you've spent that hope, and you've spent that hope, and you've spent that hope, and time and time again, you've been let down. And so now, with that last little bit of hope that you have, you want to guard it. You want to bury it and protect it and keep it safe because time and time again, that hope has disappointed. But that's not the hope that God is talking about. See, when we hope in God, our hope doesn't disappoint. And hope takes trust. And trust is built on faithfulness. See, sometimes we we think that we should just have this blind faith, this blind hope in God, this blind trust, that we just look at it and go, you know what? We just trust God. You know, we're just going to have this blind faith that's built on, on no type of reason or evidence. And thankfully, that's not what God calls us to. God calls us to look at his track record, to ask ourselves, is God faithful? See, the foundation of our hope is not ourselves. We are good at one thing, and that is being unfaithful. But thankfully, we serve a God who in the face of our unfaithfulness remains faithful. The Hebrew word to talk about this is hesed. I love that word, hesed. It's steadfastness. It's steadfast, faithful love that God continually answers our unfaithfulness with. See, we're not called to a blind faith or a blind trust. We're called to a trust that remembers, a trust that looks at the faithfulness of God. And if we are to have hope for the future, that hope in God, then we must remember the past. Because that's where we see if God has been faithful. If he has made all these promises, that's one thing. But if he's made a bunch of promises and doesn't keep them, there's no reason to have hope. 
But if the one who has promised has proven himself time and time again to be faithful, then that is the foundation of our hope, and that hope won't disappoint. Thankfully, we have a great record of God's faithfulness. All the scriptures tell us time and time again of a God who is consistent and consistent in his faithfulness. Now, as a side note here, this is where we kind of do ourselves a little bit of a disservice as Christians sometimes. Because sometimes we look at the Old Testament, it has the word old in it. And we look at the New Testament, which has a much better word new in it. And we think, okay, this is the old covenant, and now we've got the new covenant. And we think if we have this new covenant, what do we even need this old covenant for, right? That doesn't really apply to us. All the Christian part is the new covenant. So let's just focus on that. But the problem is there's a ton for us in the Old Testament, not the least of which is this living memory, this idea of this, this track record of who God is, time and time again showing up. And when we cut ourselves off from that, we cut ourselves off from a very valuable resource. Now, I get it. It's full of weird names, strange rituals that don't make any sense to us. I get all that. But it's important for us to seek it because there's so much for us there, including that memory. And it's important for us to remember it's not our memory first. That history, that ancestorship, all of that belongs first to the Jews. And we need to recognize that and we need to honor that. But we also now get to claim that. Because as Roman tells, Romans tells us, we've been grafted in. Romans says that we were like this wild olive branch over here, the Gentiles, that's us. We were this wild olive branch, and then you've got the domesticated olive branch that's the Jews and the promises that God has made to them and the faithfulness that he has shown. But Paul says that we've been grafted into that. Another way to see it is in Ephesians 3, 6. It says, this mystery is that the Gentiles, us, are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. See, it's like we've been adopted into a family. And when you're adopted into a family, you get with it all of the crazy aunts and uncles, all the ancestors, all the traditions, all the history. That now becomes yours. And so we ourselves have that to cling to as well. It becomes for us a great resource where we see the faithfulness of God. And so we can and we should claim it because we have been adopted into this family. And so now we share in the promise, in the spiritual ancestors and the history and the memory that come with that promise. And as we begin to look through that history, we see God faithfully showing up time and time and time and time again. We see a God at work literally from the beginning. When the earth was formless and void, we see the Spirit of God hovering over the deep. And we hear as God calls forth light, calls it into existence for the very first time. We see God ordering the chaos and filling the emptiness and then blessing the life that he has made possible. God's creation is perfect and good. But then we bring sin into this perfect picture, and we corrupt it. We corrupt that goodness. But even then, even in our sin, we see God in his mercy not giving up on us. We see, we see God continuing to chase after us, even when it gets so bad that it seems like the world is sinking deeper and deeper and deeper into its sin. Even when our evilness causes the waters of chaos to break forth again and threaten all of life and threaten to wipe humanity from the face of the earth, even then we see the space for life that God protects in the ark. And we see 
and we know it's God again. And when the floodwaters recede and dry land appears and creation begins anew, it's him again. And when a barren old couple is given the promise that they will be the mother and father of a great nation who will be a blessing to everyone else, to all the peoples of the world, we laugh right alongside Sarah at the absurdity of that promise. But when that promise is fulfilled and the barren gives birth to a baby boy, we look on in awe and can't help but say, it's him again. When God hears the cries of a group of slaves in Egypt, it's him again. When an ostracized, stuttering shepherd stares down Pharaoh, it's him again. When the slaves march freely out of Egypt, laden with the gold and the gems of their former taskmasters, it's him again. When those same slaves find their backs up against the sea and the might of all of Egypt bearing down on them and those waters part and the slaves walk to freedom on dry land, it is him again. When Pharaoh's great army with horses and chariots and soldiers of war are defeated without the people even raising a sword, it's him again. When water flows from rocks in the desert and the floor of the desert is covered in bread, it's him again. When the jaws of the lions are shut, when Goliath falls to a little shepherd boy, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego step out of the fiery furnace unharmed, it is him again, it's him again. When the impenetrable walls of Jericho fall to a marching band, it's him again. When Gideon's army of 300 men defeat an army of tens of thousands armed with nothing but trumpets and lanterns, it's him again. When the prophets come to a people in exile preaching not only repentance, but also comfort to the people. When they share the promise of the one who will come and set the people free, it's him again. And when the exiles finally return to Jerusalem to rebuild their broken city, it's him again. And when the angels come to a group of shepherds and proclaim joy to the world and peace on earth, it's him again. When the long-awaited child of the promise is born in a lowly stable in Bethlehem, it's him again. When that child grows up to be a man, and by his touch, the blind receive their sight, the deaf hear, the lame walk, and the prisoners are set free, the dead are called forth from the grave, it's him again. And even when we see the son of the promise hanging on the cross, put there by our sins, as so we watch him dying, and we hear him cry out to the Father for us. And with his last breath, he asks, Father, forgive them. In that perfect picture of perfect love, we know it's him again. Then when the night closes in, we find ourselves at the deepest depths of our despair. When it looks like the darkness has finally overcome the light, death is triumphant and sin has won. Suddenly the darkness of the night is shattered once more by the bright light of hope that breaks forth from an empty tomb 
when we see the stone rolled away and we hear that the one who is dead is no longer among the place of the dead because he has risen, he has risen indeed. Our hearts cry out with everything in us. It is him again. It's him again. Praise God, it's him again. So in the fulfillment of the promise, we're given this gift of Emmanuel, God with us. And by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we know that there is now no place that we can go where God does not go before us. So we can look around even at the brokenness of our desperate, hurting world, and even there still see evidence of a faithful God at work. When our marriages are brought back from the brink, it's him again. When the chains of addiction are broken, it's him again. When the prisoners of the sex trade are set free, it's him again. When a child who thought that nobody wanted them is adopted and finds and comes to know the love of a family, it's him again. When babies are born to the barren, it's him again. When cancers are healed, it's him again. When relationships are mended, it's him again. And when our own blind eyes see for the first time a God who loves us, it's him again. When our deaf ears hear the good news of God's forgiveness and mercy, it's him again. When the doors of our prisons of sin that have held us captive for so long break forth before our Savior, it is him again. It's him again. And we know, we know that one day the promised one will come again. He'll bring a new heaven and a new earth. He will make all things right. He'll bring peace and put an end to suffering and pain. Even death will be no more. And when he wipes away every one of our tears, we will join with the whole world in shouting and praising, it's him again, it's him again, praise God, it's him again. And yes, in the meantime, we wait. Nobody likes to wait. But in the meantime, we wait, but it is far from a useless waiting. Well, Dr. Seuss was wrong because ours is a hope-filled waiting. And as we, live, as we wait, we live into and out of that hope. We join Jesus in the restoration work that he is already doing all around us. In so doing, we become agents of that hope. See, our primary mission, our primary work as a church, the body of Christ, is to have eyes to see God's hand at work in the world, to have the willingness to participate in that work, and to have the courage to witness that work. We are not God's sole presence in the world. We are, however, the primary witness to God's presence in the world. And so we are called to go out into that world, that hurting and broken and desperate, sometimes hopeless world, we are called to go out and proclaim, it's him again. So that's what we're going to do. In just a moment, we're going to send you out, out into the world to be agents of that hope, knowing that that hope does not rest in ourselves, it's not built on our foundation of unfaithfulness, but it's built on the one who makes promises and keeps them. And so we celebrate the first advent and we hope for the second. And in the meantime, we live out that hope around us. And through that, God brings restoration 
and, and new life and healing. So we're going to send you out, but before we do, the band's going to come back. They're going to lead us in worship. And as they do, I'm going to invite you to these tables, the ones in the front and the ones in the back. Here at the tables, we have a simple meal of bread and cup. And even here in what we call communion, even here, we find that communion remembers the past. Jesus, when he established communion, he took the elements and he said, do this in remembrance of me. Because see, if that past hadn't happened, we have no hope for the present or the future. But through Jesus, through the promise that was realized in that child, through his life, death, and resurrection, we have hope. We have a hope that remembers that at this table we find grace. And it is only by the grace of God that we have a way to God. But by the grace of God, we have a way to God. We communion also anticipates a time when we will gather together and we will see more clearly and the fullness of the kingdom will come about and we will share that meal with our Savior face to face. It anticipates the future. But I encourage you to remember too that communion, as we go to these tables, it empowers the present. As you go to these tables of grace and you remember the grace that you receive, receive it again. Be filled to overflowing with that grace and the hope that comes with it so that we can then go from this place and embody that hope to others. So come. Come to the table. Take communion. You can also leave your offering in the back if you wish. Probably should have worked that one in earlier. But you can leave that in the back if you'd like to support the mission and life of New City. You can also give on the app. But right now, let us pray before we go to worship. Lord Jesus, we come before you these weeks before Advent, and each week we're asking ourselves, what child is this? Who are you, Lord? Today we confess and we praise your name that you are the one who brings hope to the hopeless. Lord God, I do pray for those here today who are guarding the last bit of hope that they have, that maybe aren't sure that they want to let it go yet, because that's a dangerous thing. Too many times we've hoped in the wrong things and been disappointed. But those who are suffering today, those who look around and for them, it's difficult to see beyond the darkness that surrounds them. God, remind us that you are faithful, that you are the one that we can put our hope in. We remember not only the, the parable of the talents and where we're called not to bury that away and just protect it, but God, I also remember the little boy who brought you so little couple fish, a few loaves of bread, and what you were able to do with that. So be faithful again, Lord. Continue in your hesedness as we bring you so little, that last bit of hope we have. Return it to us tenfold, hundredfold, not just for our sake, but so that we can embody your hope to the world around us. God, we light this candle of hope today representing your light and we beg you, Lord, to again break into the darkness, shine your light into those places, bring hope to the hopeless. And we thank you, Lord, that you are faithful and trustworthy and true, that you are the promiser, the promised one, and the one who keeps the promise. In your name we pray.